You can turn your Bibles to Psalm 73. I was talking with Aunt Brenda this morning and she asked me, she said, you are, you're preaching on Psalm 73, right? I said, yeah, you going through the whole thing? Yeah. <laughs> so if, uh, if you can see that, that's, that's where we're going. Scribbles everywhere. But, it is, it is all glorious. And I hope that you see the glory that God has showed me in His Word this past week. Let's pray. Father, I come before You and I stand before Your people. And I ask and I pray what I have been praying, Father, all of this week as I have looked into Your Word. Father, I ask that You would help me to show them what You have shown me. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I pray that's what we would all see as we look into Psalm 73. Oh, may it be to Your glory and for the good of Your people. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. What makes this psalm so wonderful is the unreserved honesty of its author and the profound mercy of God. I say unreserved honesty because Asaph, a chief musician in David's day, holds nothing back as he questions and doubts things that he does not understand. And God is profoundly merciful because He does not leave Asaph without an answer. And the answer, as we shall see, is God Himself. Now, let's look together at how Asaph lays all this before us. Starting in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Now, as we were reading that psalm together, I'm sure that you could see that it is very up, down, comes back up. It's like life, isn't it? It's like a roller coaster of emotions everywhere. And so, I want to take a moment and try to help you see the flow of where we're going in this psalm. So, in verse 1, Asaph starts with a high point. He starts at the top. Then in verses 2 and 3, we see him start to decline. And then in verses 4 through 12, we see his descent. In verses 13 and 15, he has hit the bottom. In 16 and 17, we see his turning point. In verses 18 through 24, we see his ascent. And in verses 25 and 26, we see the peak. And oh, I'm ready to get there. And then in verses 27 and 28, he levels out very much like he began. So, starting at the top in verse 1. In verse 1, Asaph starts with a true statement about God. And he knows it's a true statement about God because he has the nation's whole history to prove that truly God is good to Israel and especially to those who are pure in heart. Now, this verse also shows us that the doubt and questioning that Asaph is about to descend into is not like the doubt and questioning of an unbeliever or a skeptic. It shows us in the words of James Boyce that Psalm 73 is an example of faith honestly doubting what it does in fact believe. Then in verses 2 and 3, Asaph says that although... He knows this statement is true. His feet had almost stumbled. His steps had nearly slipped. Now why? Why had he almost stumbled? He tells us in verse 3. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now three words I really want you to pay attention to in that verse are the words arrogant, prosperity, and wicked. Because... Those three words are at the core of where Asaph is about to go and describe at length in verses 4 through 11. Now also, as we go through these verses here, although it is a description of Asaph's descent, he is also describing the wicked's ascent. You know, they are increasing in their wickedness. So it's very much like this. Asaph is moving down, the wicked are moving up in his mind. And it's all very poetic, you remember. And that's what makes it really so wonderful, how he's describing all of this at the same time. So in verses 4 and 5, Asaph mainly focuses on their prosperity. He says, For they have no pangs until death, bodies are fat and sleek, They are not in trouble as others are, are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So all of those things are very physical benefits that they are enjoying. And then in verse 6, he says, Therefore, and he makes the connection between their prosperity 
and their arrogance, or their pride, as he says, and their wickedness. Then in verse 7, he puts them together. First, their prosperity. Eyes swell out through fatness. Then, their wickedness. Hearts overflow with follies. And then in verse 8, he focuses just on their arrogance, just on their wickedness. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. Then in verses 9, 10, and 11, he takes us to the peak of their wickedness. No longer do they direct their wickedness, their sin, toward the people of God. They direct it toward God Himself. Of course, we know that all sin is against God. No matter how or who it is committed against, it is all against God. Sin is against God. But when someone consciously directs their wickedness, their sin at God Himself, it has reached its peak. And so after this lengthy description of the wicked, Asaph says in verse 12, Behold, and then he summarizes what he has just said. These are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And then as we come to verses 13 through 15, Asaph has hit the bottom. He cannot sink any lower. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And at this point you can really see the comparison of these verses and the verses we just went through. He is comparing his situation with the wicked and it has made him miserable. You can see in verses 4-11 through 11 where he has used they. He says for they, they are, their eyes, they scoff, they set, and they say. And then in verses 13 and 14, all in vain have I, my hands, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Again, I think James Boyce describes this scene very well. He writes, What is the point of being godly then? Asaph asked. Or as we would put it, what is the advantage of being a Christian if those who are not Christians get what I want and I don't get it? Indeed, the situation is even worse than that. For not only do I not get what I want, I have troubles to boot. In fact, it even seems as if I am being punished for trying to be good. Now have you felt like that before? Have you felt like Asaph? Have you felt like living a godly life has been in vain? Like living the Christian life has been a waste because you haven't gained anything from it? Now, at this point, I really wanted to get specific and just confront all of us the best I could, you know, even my own heart. But I know that this struggle is different from all of us because we are all tempted in very many ways. You know, one what one person is enticed by does not entice the next person. But the heart of this matter is the same for all of us. And at the heart of this problem is that God has been removed from the center. And when God is removed from the center, we take His place. 
And when we take the place of God at the center, everything then revolves around us. It's all about what we think. It's all about how we think things should be. What we think we deserve. We look out into the world and we see our situation and we compare it with others. And when it's not us gaining, we say, that should be us. You know, I'm godly. I live a good life. I should prosper and they should suffer. They're bad. That's how it works, you know. They're evil. I'm good. They get punished and I rejoice. But, you know, what exactly do we deserve? It's not prosperity. And Asaph definitely, uh, definitely doesn't deserve it either. He's a sinner. What do we deserve? We deserve the wrath of God. All of us. And so, you know, this is very much like the, the situation of Job. You know, Job was a good man. Blameless in the sight of God, the book of Job says. Bad things happen to Job. And at first, Job starts out pretty good. He says, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the Lord. I don't even know how many of us would even actually be able to start off like that. Much less, you know, keep going. And so Job starts off good, but eventually he says things that he shouldn't say. He questions God. And God appears before Job. And in the words of C.J. Mahaney, he takes him to the zoo. (laughs) He puts a lot of things before Job. He asks Job's question that he does not know the answer to. Things that are far above Job. And the point is that Job's view is so narrow. Who are we to question Almighty God? He showed him all of those things and Job knew none of them. And so it is with Asaph. Although Asaph's answer, as we will see in a moment, is more detailed. But this is all the same for us. You know, the answer is God Himself. Now, moving on to verse 15. Verse 15 is a very interesting verse because even at the bottom of all of Asaph's doubt and questioning, he has still not forsaken God. He has not forsaken God because God has not forsaken Asaph. His grip is still upon him. And we can see this because... Asaph says, if I had said, I would have betrayed. And I believe mainly he's talking about verses 13 and 14. If he would have said those things to the children of God, he would have betrayed them. Now let's be very clear, because the things he has described in verses 4 through 11 are very true. We watch wicked people prosper every day. And we suffer like the righteous. Those things happen. But the world view that Asaph has been looking at these people with is wrong. And so his conclusion is wrong. And if he would have told the people of God that, he would have lied to them. Because it's not true. And here in a moment we're going to see why. In verses 16 and 17, 
we are brought to the turning point of Asaph. He says in verse 16, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So Job is now pondering the truth of verse 1 that he has said, that true statement, truly God is good to Israel, especially to those who are pure in heart. And he's also pondering the truths of verses 4-11. through And he's trying to see how they fit together. And he says it makes him weary. He's weary trying to understand it. Until, he says in verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Now when I was studying this verse the other day, I could not help but imagine that the version, the world's version of this verse would be, until I listened to my heart. Until I listened to my emotions, and then they told me what I should do. You know, that, that's very true, isn't it? I think there is a important lesson here for us to see about understanding emotions, understanding our feelings. Because you know where that type of thinking got Asaph? It got him verses 4 through 15. It got him wallowing in misery because of what he saw and what he felt. Yes, emotions and feelings have their place, but let them go up beside God's Word. When you feel things, when you have these emotions, when you see things you don't understand, take them to the Bible. You know God's Word? It, By the way, it pertains everything to life and godliness. So, you know, go to it. Do not forget to consider the Bible, God's Word. We are very up and down like we're seeing in this psalm. But God's Word is straight. It is true. It never fails. It never lies. It can be trusted. Now, back to Asaph's situation. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. What's the sanctuary of God? This is where God's glory dwelt among His people. And so I believe that Asaph goes into the temple. Uh, at this point, it's the tent. He goes into the tent, the tent of meeting, the sanctuary of God. And I believe he experiences the weight of the glory of God. And more specifically, I believe that as he experiences that weight of God's glory, he thinks back to this experience in Exodus 33 and 34. I'll read to you, from Exodus 34, uh, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third in fourth generation. Now I mention those couple of verses to you because 
those verses were crucial to the people of God in Asaph's day in understanding the glory of God and what it was like. You remember, Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And then the Lord appears to Moses on Mount Sinai and He passes before him. And He says those words. You know, God didn't have to describe His glory in that way. There are a lot of things that God could have said to describe His glory and they would have been true. He could have spoke of how mighty He is the Almighty. He is the first. He is the last. He is sovereign over all things. And they would have all been true. But He chose to show Moses, to tell Moses about His steadfast love and faithfulness and also how He will not allow the wicked to go unpunished. And so I very much think that those things... I mean, you and I think we're familiar with those verses. Imagine the people in Asaph's day. I imagine they had the whole law memorized. Knew it all. So when Asaph comes out of his experience in the sanctuary of God, everything is different. He says, Then I discern their end. And in verses 18 and 20, we can see this. Remember, this is Asaph beginning to work his way back up. And in verses 4 through 11, I showed you that Asaph was moving down and the wicked were moving up. Well, now, since God has returned Asaph to a God-centered view, it's changed. Asaph is now rising back up and the wicked are now shrinking in his mind because of the God-centered view that God has restored Asaph to. He says in verse 8, uh, excuse me, verses 18 and 20, he says, Truly you set them in slippery places. So he now sees the wicked as they truly are, in a God-centered light. He also says how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Now I think all of us can especially relate to verse 20 because we all have dreams. And some of them are very good dreams. And we may experience wonderful things in those dreams. And then we wake up in the next, uh, we wake up the next morning and we're like, what happened? Where are they at? That's how the wicked are. That's how all their prosperity, all their abundance, all their arrogance, all the things they enjoy are like a dream. They wake up the next morning and reality is before them. They stand before God. And they will either stand before Him in judgment or in peace. In peace if they repent, if not before judgment. Then in verses 21 and 22, Asaph not only sees the wicked as they are, but he now sees himself as he was in his state of mind in verses 13 and 14. He says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Asaph sees now just how senseless, just how ignorant, and just how sinful his way of thinking truly was. 
But he doesn't stop there. In verse 23, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. This is the profound mercy of God in verses 23 and 24. This is the reason why Asaph could say in verses, in verse 2, that his feet had almost stumbled, that his steps had nearly slipped, because God was with him. Even in the midst of the pit of darkness, of doubt and questioning, God was with him. He did not forsake God because God did not forsake him. And so it is true for us. As the people of God, as children of God, God is with us in our deepest struggles. When we see things that we don't understand, when they make us doubt the truths that we know are true, God is there. He's holding our right hand. He's leading us. He's guiding us with His counsel. And when everything is all said and done, like Asaph, He will receive us to glory. Now we come to verses 25 and 26. We have reached the peak of this psalm. And it is beautiful. It is some of the most wonderful verses in all the Bible. So at this point, Asaph is, he has considered his situation where he was, the struggle that he's went through, the darkness that he descended down into, the turning point, God showing him himself, showing him his glory, leading him out of it. And now he sings. And this is what he sings to God. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, that man, Asaph saying because of what he saw, he saw the glory of God in the sanctuary of God. What have you and I seen? We have seen the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. And He is altogether lovely. It doesn't matter what you see other people enjoy, what the wicked have, what you don't have. It doesn't matter. Because when God puts Himself before you, shining in the face of Christ, you don't want anything else. He is the true treasure. He never decreases in value. He never gets old. You never get tired of looking at Him. He is still delightful 10,000 years into glory that in the first day we will look upon His face. He is heaven's joy. He's the crown jewel of all things. Everything points to Jesus. All of creation, all of the Bible, it all points to its Maker, to Him. And one day, when He comes to make all things new, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. That He is Lord. And we will either confess and do those things with joy welling up in our hearts, 
or with fear hiding our face because the glory of the Lamb is unbearable to look upon. How do you see the Lord Jesus Christ all his chapel? Now I know we are all sinners. I am a sinner. And just like we've talking about, life is a roller coaster of emotions. You know, one day we're talking like this, oh, the glory of Christ shining. And then the next day it's very much like Asaph. He doesn't know his right hand from his left. What do I do? Where do I go? What do I believe? But just like he says in verse 23, nevertheless, God is continually with us. Now in verses 27 and 28, Asaph ends very much like he began with a statement of truth. He says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is Good to be near God. I have made, Lord God, my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And I just want to remind you real quick, in verse 15, Asaph didn't want to tell anybody the experience that he was having. But now, after all of this, he comes to the end. He makes his last statement of truth. And after all he's seen, he says, I want to tell everyone all the works of God. And so I conclude very much like I began. I told you at the beginning that what made this psalm so wonderful was the unreserved honesty of its author and the profound mercy of God. So let us like Asaph have a unreserved honesty before our God, trusting that in the life, in the death, and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, He has profound mercy to show. The Lord Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died the death that you and I deserve. He rose again on the third day, and He sits on the right hand of God in glory. And because of that, when everything is said and done, He will receive us into glory. I hope that you know Christ in that way because He is altogether lovely. Be honest with Him. Come before Him no matter how sinful you are, what, no matter what you've done. He will receive you. He will show mercy upon you. And God through Him will receive you to glory.